The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, chaos, life hacks, and a reference to Scott Morrison. Saturday, the 22nd of October, 2022. It's a solo episode of The Edict this week, so let's get straight into it. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm reinvention of all the things in the UK, the US and Australia. been a night of astonishing scenes at Westminster with reports of jostling, manhandling, bullying and shouting outside the parliamentary lobbies in a supposed vote of confidence in the government. The deputy chief whip was reported to have left the scene saying, I'm absolutely effing furious, I just don't effing care anymore, before he resigned along with the chief whip. But we've just been told they have now officially unresigned. The Home Secretary has, however, definitely gone. In short, it is total, absolute, abject chaos. Well, dear listener, what do you make of that? And more importantly, what do you make of this? Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. So congratulations to Liz Truss for being the shortest serving Prime Minister of the Great Britain and Northern Ireland ever. Like, ever. 45 days. And even then, 10 of those days were the official mourning period for the death of uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. 35 actual days in the office, during which things could have been done and weren't so many things done. The tanking of the economy, the rollback of... Pretty much every measure in her mini-budget, which of course was a mini-budget and not a proper budget because a proper budget has to go through a whole bunch of analysis and other things, etc., etc., etc. I should point out that nearly everything I'm about to say could be out of date again by the time the podcast has finished being recorded. At The very moment these words are coming out of my mouth and into the microphone, it is 3.11pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday, the 22nd of October. Yesterday, though, Friday, uh, as Silvano, friend of the pod, reminded reminded us, It was the birthday, or at least the anniversary of the birth, of Alfred Nobel, who you may uh, know of the Nobel Prize. He was a Swedish chemist, though, and he is best known for those those, uh, Nobel Prizes. There's several of them now. But in fact, he was a chemist, an engineer, an inventor, Uh, his most famous invention being dynamite which was a safer and easier method of harnessing the explosive power of nitroglycerin. It was painted in, uh, patented rather, in 1867. It made, it made 
explosives less likely to explode. Ms. Trust may have wanted some of that. She may also have wanted the invention of someone else who was born on the 21st of, uh, 21st of October, uh, but in 1914, an American, Samuel W. Alderson, inventor of the crash test dummy. Uh, you can fill in the rest of the joke there for yourself. There's been some amazing political polling in the last few days. One of them I've, I've linked to is from... Uh, uh, well, it's a polling company uh, called People Polling. They do, in fact, do polling for GB News, the far-right British news outlet. Uh, but uh, So uh, that part, at least, is a genuine poll. And it, it shows, look at the map, click through. As you know, I link to all the things on the podcast website. Uh, it shows very few seats of the British electorate left if there were an election held there tomorrow, which isn't going to be a thing. But what is noticeable is that these terms for the length of someone being in office as Prime Minister of the UK have been getting shorter and shorter and shorter. On Twitter, Rob Sansom uh, did a linear trend down from through Flatch, uh, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, Johnson, and then to Truss. And uh, he predicts that the next Prime Minister will be in office for around minus 200 days. Okay, that's a linear regression. That's not appropriate. How about if we uh, put an exponential trend line in or a log trend line or something like that. Uh, Jonathan Pryor did that on Twitter. Thatcher was Prime Minister for over 4,000 days, Major and Cameron around 2,000 days each, May and Johnson just over 1,000 each, Truss around 50 days each. So have a look at that. Uh, by mid-March next year, we'll have a new Tory Prime Minister every few seconds. So that'll be fun. So many words have been written about this. Uh, friend of the pod, John Birmingham, uh, his column this week was titled Let Us Pray for the Departed. So many lettuce jokes. You know why that is. The whole Daily Star's lettuce stunts, the 20 pence head of lettuce, did in fact outlast the Prime Minister. So now we're up for a new one. We will know by uh, this time next week, in all likelihood, um, what has to happen now is that uh, there are around, what, 400-ish Tory MPs in the British Parliament. They can nominate someone to be Prime Minister. Anyone who gets more than 100 uh, nominations is, is up with a chance. And so far, Rishi Sunak uh, has got his 100 um, if there's anyone else uh, comes up with more than 100 uh, nominations, then a vote will be held and that vote will be held. So the nominations close sometime Monday British time and, and then the vote will be happening during the week. Jeremy Hunt, the current Chancellor of the Exchequer. Jeremy Richard Strencham Hunt. Um, I, I always look at him. I, I mean, he... He will, have been, he will have been like Chancellor of the Exchequer for like 27 minutes or something. Just look at him. Check a photograph of him. Jeremy Hunt. 
How could anyone look at Jeremy Richards, Stretchum Hunt, and think, yeah, choose him. Let's give him all the money to look after. I mean, he, he looks like a startled chihuahua that's been caught humping the custard. Uh, yeah, that's a that's an image that existed in my head. But, you know, really, got to imagine finding Jeremy Hunt's pubic hair in your dessert. Sorry, I shouldn't kink shame, but... They, they learn to do this sort of thing, don't they? On uh, Sky News UK, which is not quite as insane as Sky News Australia, there's uh, someone, someone the Guardian described as a, a veteran Tory MP, Sir Christopher Chope. Uh, he said, well, look, it, here he is on Sky News. In a maelstrom now, so who do you want to see take over then? Well, I... I I don't see that there's really um, any of the candidates of coming forward are um, going to command my support. And I think that uh, the news that uh, Boris Johnson might be riding to the rescue of the country and the Conservative Party is really a, a great tonic. And I'm really excited about that prospect because I didn't want him to be deposed in the first place. I said we'd rue the day that he was deposed. Sadly, I've been proved right on that. But I think uh, that if we had Boris back, then he He's already got a mandate from the British people and my um, email box is full up with people saying they want to have Boris back. So I see him as the, uh, the great hope. So the man that they, they only just got rid of because they didn't think he was doing a good job is, is the great hope. Now, Sir Christopher there is getting on a bit. Maybe his memory is fading. Maybe he's kind of forgotten that. Maybe his his uh, uh, inability to find some of the other candidates attractive is because you know they're either women or they have skin which is not white. Or maybe maybe he has something for Boris. Ooh, I mean the young Boris did look quite hot. Maybe not hot, but in any event. Yes, Boris Johnson is on the way back to the UK. Uh, Rishi Sunak has, as I said, he's got the 100 MPs signatures. Boris is going to get there. Uh, his former allies say he'll easily get 100 signatures, which then means that it will be a, a, a vote between uh, Rishi and Boris. That'll be interesting. Turning to the wisdom of the crowd, or at least the wisdom of the betting market, Ladbrokes, the the great British uh, uh, bookmakers agency, you know them, betting market thing, they of course have a book opened, and I should have placed a bet last night because uh, let, let's let's look at the prices as of uh, this time of recording. Rishi Sunak is. Uh, the favourite at the moment with the price of $1.67 for your $1 bet. Boris Johnson is at $2.63. It was at $3.25 uh, yesterday. So Boris looking more likely. Penny Mordant next at 10 to 1 at uh, the $10 vote. And then you hit uh, Kemi Badenoch at uh, $101, and then all the rest are at at least $201, blowing out uh, eventually down the list. They're all at $200 or $201, 
except for Jonathan Gulls and Nadine Dorries, who are at $501, so 500 to 1. Uh, my guess is it will come down to a runoff between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson in the ballot. It would be a hard stretch for Penny Mordaunt to also get 100 signatures, given that there are only around, as I say, 400 uh, Tory MPs. Quite funny if uh, Boris gets back in and then a whole lot of defectors happen and then they lose control of the government, the whole thing turns to a general election and they get creamed. See also the uh, the polling figures earlier. Now, the idea of uh, a male leader to a female leader back to the male leader, Boris Johnson to Liz Truss and then back to Boris Johnson, if that happens, uh, as John McTernan puts it, Boris Johnson then becomes the Tory party's Kevin Rudd, who, of course, went Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd. And when John McTernan said that on Twitter, someone with the handle a pragmatic lefty, um, well, actually, to be the, the Twitter ID is pragmatic lefty, um, uh, syringe emoji, a syringe emoji, syringe emoji, a syringe emoji, mask up, Masked face emoji, masked face emoji, masked face emoji, masked face emoji, masked face emoji. I'll just call them pragmatic lefty for short. Tweeted back, you have no idea who Kevin Rudd is, do you? Rudd, mega intellect, strategic and visionary. Johnson, inbred, eaten town twat. And I suppose that's true. I suppose John McTernan has never even heard of Kevin Rudd given that he was Julia Gillard's communications director. Pro tip, dear listener, if you're going to come back with some outraged opinion about something, at least at least check to see who you're talking to. It will be interesting. New Statesman, which is a leftist paper in the, in the, in the UK, of course, says... Uh, it may be that we've now reached the point where no party leader can help the Conservatives recover to an election-winning level this side of the 2020s. Uh, maybe their only pathway back to power or even to contention might be through losing it first. And then in the wilderness, they'll have time to think about it. An interesting argument, well put, link on the podcast webpage. And I, and I think they may have a point because YouGov, another polling company, quite a big and respected polling company, they have a daily question and their daily uh, question on the 19th, which was Wednesday, uh, sorry, 18th, they did the polling, how embarrassed do you feel, if at all, by the economic and political situation in Britain at the present time? Only 6% of people said they were not embarrassed at all. 8% said they didn't know. Um, but very embarrassed, 46%. Fairly embarrassed, 31%. Not very embarrassed, but still a bit embarrassed, 9%. So what's that? 46 and 31 is 77 plus 9 is 86% of people have some level embarrass of embarrassment nearly Half of those polled, and certainly half of those that had an opinion, were very embarrassed about the UK political and economic situation at the moment. But here in Australia, you've got to ask, why do we actually care? I've spent quite a bit of time already talking about this, haven't I? It's, it's 15 minutes or so now. 
I know that our flag has the flag of the UK in the top left corner, the canton as it's called. That is the bit which means, I mean, that's how you indicate colonial relationships. Um, and, and that's why I think, yes, we need to change the flag and people think, oh, it's part of our history. And I said, yeah, it's also the, in the tradition of vexillology, the, the study of flags, this is literally a colonial relationship, a subordinate relationship. Um, so, I mean, there's that, but so many Australians do not have that background of being part of the British Empire. I mean, sure, Britain's an important ally. There's the Yakuza Agreement, UK-USA, at the end of World War II, uh, which created the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Relationship. We're very closely bound there in the Anglosphere of the, the US, the UK and, uh, and Australia, uh, and to a lesser extent Canada and New Zealand as the junior partners in the Yakuza Agreement. We now have AUKUS, AUKUS, AUK, AUK, uh, the one that... The, the, technology sharing agreement between Australia, the UK and the US. But is that enough for us to be paying so much attention to what happens in the UK? I mean, it's important. So I thought I'd have a look, you know, how big is the UK's economy? How important a trade partner are they really? Well, according to the charts... The UK is still the world's fifth biggest economy, provided you split up the EU into its component nations. But even then, Germany's still bigger than the UK. Germany at number four spot. For those keeping score at home, yes, the biggest is still the US, followed by China, followed by Japan, followed by Germany, followed by the UK. Australia is down at number 13, nestled between Brazil and Spain. But when you look at... Uh, the numbers, I mean, the US uh, GDP of uh, $22 trillion or 23 China down at 18 call it. But then you get to Japan at 5 Germany 4 and a bit, UK down at 3 all the way down Australia at $1.5. I mean, the UK's economy is a, you know, twice the size of Australia. They have a little over twice the population from memory. So I suppose... Yeah, we should pay attention to one of the, the top five economies, but we pay a lot more attention to the UK than India, and they're about the same size. Interesting. All right, what about our trading partnerships? Uh, I could only get from uh, DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and a Trade, their website has the 2018-2019 figures on it. Uh, I don't know why they've got more recent, uh, haven't got more recent figures. But again, China, our biggest trading partner, you knew that. Japan and then the United States, then Korea, Singapore. United Kingdom's at number seven, but then our total trade with China is $235 billion a year. With the UK, it's $30 billion a year, which is a 3.4% share of the total trade. China's more than a quarter. Japan, 10%. US, 9%. Call it, I'm rounding off. Britain down at three and a bit. You know, we, we, we should only be paying uh, like a quarter of the attention to British politics as we do to Chinese politics. And it's really the other way around, isn't it? I mean, there is a free trade agreement between Australia and the UK, except it hasn't quite been fully worked out. Um, Scott Morrison signed it, and it was the first free trade agreement between Britain in the post-Brexit era. And I think really that was just symbolic because... 
yeah, all right, Morrison had signed anything that made him look good on 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 telly. <sighs> May not happen. I mean, Liz Truss, whoever's in you, they're going to have a bit on their plate rather than uh, rather than a free trade agreement with Australia. I guess the real reason, obviously, is that we're paying a lot of attention to all this British politics because it's just so fucking funny. I mean, Steve Baker, one of the British MPs, uh, we have on on tape Christian Gurumurti, who's Channel 4 News' chief news presenter, calling Steve Baker a cunt. There it is on a hot mic. Now, Snarky Platypus and I were chatting on the on on privately uh, while this was happening, and he he just said, "Who's Steve Baker?" I had to look him up too. But apparently, uh, he's Minister for State for Northern Ireland, or or at least at the time of recording. Um, the Platypus said, "He, you know, I don't know most of these random Tory ministers. I had to Google Suella Braverman and her awfulness. Oh, that's true." I said, suggest, yeah, this week isn't the time to put any effort into remembering names. But he said, well, who, ha- who has to know them anyway? There's, they're like a sushi chain of conservative incompetence in the UK, which is true, except, you know, the fish is off. There, there is no fish, he says. It's just spoiled egg sushi. There is no fish. It's right. I mean, you know, if you go to a sushi train... And it's going round and around in, you know, the late afternoon. The lunch crowd has been through. They haven't started making the, the fresh uh, fish sushi, slicing up the, the salmon or the tuna or whatever, you know, just yet. They've only got a few of those kind of pretty ordinary kind of cooked fish stuff. Or the vegetable, or the fucking, the California roll. I mean, what what's that? It's a stick of fucking cucumber and avocado, and that no, that awful. But that's all you got to choose from. And there's this one, you know, thing. It's it's probably like a, a deep fried tempura prawn or something. And it's there. There's all these gaps between the plates, and these these few sad dishes going round. And round and round. It's, I, but it is funny, isn't it? Uh, I, I reckon Prime Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg. Get used to that one, boys and girls. Prime Minister Jason. No, no, it won't be. It'll be Boris again. It will be Boris again. Nick Bryant, fabulous journalist now based in the UK. Uh he he posted the, the front page of the the Sun today, the the famous Murdoch newspaper. It's got a big picture of Boris looking looking a bit rough, I must say. But Boris breaks silence. It says, "I'm flying back. We're gonna do this. I'm up for it." Well, we know Boris is up for it, right? I, I mean, just count the number of children he's had through various um, wombs. Um, well, we can't count them because we don't really... I mean, he doesn't know. No one knows how many children he's had. I think six is the currently agreed number. Uh, Nick Bryant, though, reckons Britain's 
ever more improbable political soap opera could get its, its Dallas-style Pam-finding-Bobby-in-the-shower moment. Now, I don't know what a Pam-finding-Bobby-in-the-shower moment is. I, I never really watched Dar- uh, Dallas, but Boris is up for it. Oh, re-Boris. Oh, re-Boris. Oh, you know, Boris chasing his... Uh, I thought it was funny. Okay, I've just looked up the Dallas thing. I've leaked to the explanation. It's a significant moment in the history of television, but I won't explain it now. I think I need to move on. Although uh, I should mention uh, that uh, one of Liz Truss's great things was that that plan whereby low-income households would be almost £400 a year worse off uh, because uh, the benefits, the Social Security Network, uh, would be increasing. They're not at the inflation rate on the cost of things, which is about 10% in a per annum in the UK at the moment, but only indexing them against wages, which are only going up by about 5.5%. So uh, the official data says, oh, we will save £5 billion a year by massively increasing uh, the financial stress on the poorest people of the country. So that's that's something to thank Liz Truss for. That is that is just beautiful. And speaking of the UK, and, and then I'll move on, next week, in fact, only in a few days' time, there will be another special guest episode in this, the spring series of the 9pm Edict podcast, and author and social researcher David F. Porteous will be joining us once more from the Scotland, from the Edinburgh, in fact, to look at the United Kingdom. Um, I don't know whether anything has been happening in the news that might be interesting to talk about, but if there is, we will be talking about that. And if you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic you want to toss in, uh, Tuesday night, please, uh, by 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time, this Tuesday, the 25th of October, because we're recording uh, early Wednesday morning Australian time. So get those through. Uh, you know how trigger words at a conversation topic works, I think. Yeah, anyway, I'll do a thing. So that's next week. And then the week after, finally, that episode about submarines I'm talking about. And I'm very pleased to have as my guest uh, in that first week of November, H.I. Sutton, who runs the blog Covert Shores, all about submarines, uh, open source intelligence analyst. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that conversation about what modern submarines do, where Australia's role in submarine warfare fits in with the rest of the world, uh, pros and cons of nuclear versus conventional submarines, uh, and so on. So if you're a supporter and you want to get your brain into that episode, Trigger words or conversation topics are by the 1st of November. That's 9 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Tuesday, the 1st of November. That's Melbourne Cup Day, as it happens. But get them in earlier. I'll remind you again closer to the date, of course. But that, I think, will be interesting. Uh, I've linked to the Covert Shores website. Uh, it's ugly as 
a fucking car crash, but the information in is fascinating. Uh, he's also got a YouTube channel and things like that. So that is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to submarines and the British economy or something. Uh, now, all this is made possible, of course, by you, the generous listener. This episode, thanks very much to the man in black for uh, sending through a lovely, generous contribution. Thank you very much. A whole bunch of people's uh, subscription renewals came through. I really should work out better ways of thanking you as time goes on. And thanks also to all the people who pledged their support to the 9pm Spring Series 2022's crowdfunding campaign. As you know, I'm listing you in batches in the special guest episodes. You're all listed on the website Thank you so much. If you too would like to support this podcast in an actual dollar-based way, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. All the mechanics of how to send money through various channels to me are there, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. <coughs> Elephant stamp time! <coughs> Elephant stamp time. In many episodes of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And I have three this episode. And the first one goes to, well, someone in the United States of America. Former White House advisor, longtime ally of former President Trump, Steve Bannon, has been sentenced to four months in prison for contempt of Congress. Bannon was convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Yes, uh, Steve Bannon, the man who looks like a rotting potato, uh, sat atop two shirts, one inside the other, and no socks. He doesn't wear socks. Uh, he had decided that, oh, I've been subpoenaed to appear for this committee. I don't have to turn up. I've been subpoenaed to supply all these documents. No, I don't have to turn up. All right, in jail then, four months. $6,500 fine, ha, 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 idiot. So, uh, elephant stamp to, uh, to Steve Bannon there. And as the Washington Post reports, that's now 11 Trump allies who've been convicted or pleaded guilty to various offences. Their total sentences near 30 years, uh, although... Uh, par Trump has pardoned uh, a few of them. That's knocked nearly 11 years off that total. But still, all these Trump allies, ooh, found guilty. It's getting very close to Trump. He has been subpoenaed. Will he refuse to turn up because he's too important to turn up? Or will the prospect of being live on television to tell his story uh, be too, too tempting? Don't know. So elephant stamp to Steve Bannon, at least. The second one goes to Trump supporters more generally. Uh, and you'll need to click through to have a look at this uh, on the podcast website. It's link number 26. Number 26 on your hymn sheets as you listen to this. From Poppy, uh, she notes that all, all over Facebook... Um, Trump supporters are sharing uh, this photo. It's a mock-up photo. It shows uh, Donald Trump looking under stress. He's 
hand over his heart. Standing behind him is the ethereal figure in a robe, bearded, glowing, hands on Trump's shoulders supporting him. No, it's not Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's serial killer Charles Manson. But, you know, <laughs> close enough, right? I, well, I'm not sure that he's actually technically a serial killer. Killed two people himself, seven people by proxy. Anyway, dear Trump supporters, no, 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 that's Charles Manson. Elephant stamp of approval. Uh, for excellence in the category of thinking for all of those people. And the third one goes to an unknown woman. Uh, We've learnt about this again on Twitter, where I get all of my uh, valid information, from someone uh, called Andrew Exum, who writes, My wife and I knew a lady from church who used to register her own children as unaccompanied minors on flights and then sit ten rows back from them on a four-hour flight drinking white wine and claiming not to know them. And I honestly think about this amazing woman once a week. That is a fabulous strategy. Those those children? I don't know who those children are. They're unaccompanied children, dear airline staff. You can take care of them for four hours. So thank you. And an elephant stamp to that unknown woman. Now, if you had to choose someone who was, and I quote, the true definition of a leader with a 360-degree worldview, who would you pick? I I mean, I don't know what a 360-degree worldview is, but assuming that, that that has a meaning, who has it? Who has... Calm, decisive, and rationale, which should be rationalism, rationality, but stay with me here. Who would you call a globalisation mastermind? Not, not like George Soros, where globalisation is, is code for a Jew and mastermind is new world order and evil genius, like all of that conspiracy theory bullshit. Assuming that you were so stupid you didn't realise that the words globalisation mastermind are, are meant to be a bad thing. Boundless influence and experience. Who are you thinking of here? Well, I know who you're thinking of. I'm thinking of the same person, and that is Scott Morrison, Australia's 30th Prime Minister, recently departed. No? No? You're not thinking that? Well, according to the Worldwide Speakers Group, which is a speakers bureau, you know, you're hiring a keynote person to open your conference or to inspire business leaders or whatever it might be, open your pizza shop. Well, they they now have uh, the exclusive contract to uh, act as agents for the Honourable Scott Morrison, 30th Prime Minister of Australia. And here is how they describe him. Scott Morrison 
is the true definition of a leader with a 360-degree worldview. Whatever that means. During his tenure, Morrison was tasked with several difficulties that required unique and innovative solutions. Eh? What are they? From managing the public safety of Australians during the pandemic. Remember that? To mitigating an economic crisis. Yeah, yeah. You remember how he did all that? Controlling natural disasters. He controlled the disasters. And leading the country while others were at war. He actually actually means Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that, and that required somehow special leadership in Australia. Yes, Prime Minister Morrison led Australia with his particular brand of calm decisiveness and rationale. As I say again, rationale is not used correctly there. A globalisation mastermind, Morrison lends his boundless influence and experience to audiences around the world. Boundless influence and experience. God, the gall of actually putting your your name to that. Let's let's remember that back in uh, August, for example, the Guardian. The Guardian's getting a good run this episode. Sorry about that. Uh, but Labor discovered uh, that one of little the little tricks Morrison had was for taking over control and having secrecy. Was he established? the Cabinet Office Policy Committee, which he said was part of the Cabinet Office, and this committee had one permanent member, Scott Morrison. So then when Scott Morrison meets with ministers, with public servants, with anyone at all really, he could say, well, that's a Cabinet Committee meeting. That's a subcommittee of Cabinet. So everything has Cabinet confidentiality, and you can't see that. That's secret for decades. Um, even if nothing made it out of that little special meeting into the actual cabinet meeting. So he tried that on. We know he tried on taking on secret portfolios without telling anyone else. Um, He claimed, of course, that National Cabinet, uh, which was him plus the the state premiers and, and, and so on, he said that was a subcommittee of cabinet, so that's secret too. Um, a, a federal court judge said that that concept was quote unsound quote, and then he had his national COVID nineteen coordination commission, which had no law underpinning what it did, uh, had no independent appointment process. Morrison actually said in one case that he phoned up his mate Trev or whatever his name was to be on it for his expertise. No one had any other advice on who was on this. Um, oh, Nev, that was the guy. The guy's name, Nev Power, who's the deputy chairman of a gas company. And the biggest recommendation that committee came back with was the gas-led recovery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This bunch of gas people said what you need to do is have gas. Uh, that's Scott Morrison. I just thought I should bring you up to date on that because I know that you will want to uh, hear 
about his boundless influence and experience because he is, after all, the true definition of a leader with a 360-degree worldview. Sort of like an owl, I suppose. See Scott Morrison flitting through the forest at night, grabbing mice in his teeth. Getting back there, Scott Morrison sitting on the branches, chewing on a dead mouse. This has been a relatively low-energy episode of The Edict because as I record this, it's it's actually a sunny Saturday afternoon and I'm, I'm feeling pretty chill. Uh, but I reckon to get a, get a bit of guts into it to finish off, finish strong, finish with a, with a bit of energy, and I think we need to return to the UK for this uh, and have the wonderful Jonathan Pye, who I will now play in complete breach of copyright, uh, reflecting on the time in office of the, the magnificent Liz Truss. Look at the rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, who will be the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history. I mean, that's putting it mildly, isn't it? It's almost the nicest thing you could say about her, the shortest serving Prime Minister. I can think of a thing or two I'd add to that. Um, well, uh, Liz Truss will be the shortest serving Prime Minister in UK history and she was dog shit. Fucking dog shit. Her premiership, it would, it would have been a huge disappointment if it hadn't have been such a terrible idea in the first place. Liz Truss being Prime Minister was like a 20-year-old supply teacher in a rough comprehensive shitting themselves in the middle of a GCSE geography lesson and then attempting to continue with the class. Liz Truss, a bland, talentless ferret with the lopsided grin and glassy-eyed look of a person in embarrassed to ask for directions. I've hoiked snotty greeners onto the pavement that had better political instincts than the vapid flap of skin that was Liz Truss. I've done more charismatic turds. The state of modern conservatism a Prime Minister who was utterly delusional, breathtakingly arrogant, thick as mints, and completely lacking the cognitive power to say something, anything at all, of any value whatsoever, ever. And the Conservative Party membership thought she was a good choice to run the country. Her only real achievement was limboing under the very low bar that Boris Johnson set for her just weeks ago. She was the inevitable bottom of the Brexit barrel, the political equivalent of a skid mark, a ghost poo that felt uncomfortable, but hey, it's gone. Dog shit from start to finish. How mad is it how desensitised we are to this chaos? Amazing how used we are to the cogs of government not moving at all. How accustomed we are to the self-serving lack of talent that constitutes the British Conservative Party. This party, this country, our politics has been out of control for a very long time. Years, because no one in government can admit the truth 
that there are no sunlit uplands. There never was any taking back of control except that of the lunatics taking control of the asylum and then shitting the bed as soon as they realise that with political power comes the reality of actually running an actual country with actual real human beings with actual real fucking problems. When was the last time someone was actually running the country? I'm not talking someone who's politically aligned with me. I'm talking someone competent with a modicum of integrity and an ounce of intelligence. When? Because over the summer we had months and months of inaction and lies and excuses and more lies and inaction from Boris Johnson. Then she swoops in, kills the Queen, crashes the markets and then fucks off. And now I'm in a position whereby this time next week I could very well be reporting that Boris Johnson is our new Prime Minister. Again! Dog shit. Fucking dog shit. More turbulence, more lack of direction, more bullshit, more infighting, more contempt for the voter. Dog shit. Well, the runners and riders in this all too familiar Conservative leadership bid have yet to Well, that's all the edict for now. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash chip to support the pod. You will also find all the links there, all the credits. The next episode will be coming up in just a few days. If you have questions for our trigger words, you know, all that for David F. Porteous by Tuesday night, please. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.